So today we're in uh, Acts chapter 3. And the title of today's message is called The Beautiful Gate. The Beautiful Gate. Uh, as we've seen and heard a hundred times by now, Acts is that Greek word praxeus, and it's um, sort of a famous act. It's something they use for kings. And uh, we see that in the Old Testament, or we see that today. You know, you might go to the presidential library, it might be the Acts of the President, or the acts of a king. Um, but I think it's interesting, again, just to remind us that God has made us kings and priests, and this book, Acts, uh, I think it's fitting that that word is used uh, as God begins to work uh, in his people and through his people uh, universally in the church. Uh, Acts mainly covers uh, the lives and ministries, really, of Peter and Paul, uh, but it really gives us the foundation for the church. Uh, as we saw last week, Acts 2.42, that they continued steadfastly, the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, prayers, and fellowship. But that was the foundation of the church, that these four things are what the church is to be about. Uh, not that the church doesn't evangelize or do outreach or anything, but that the core of the church is studying the Bible, worshiping and praying to God, and communing together both in communion, um, but also in just fellowship and hanging out from day to day and just doing life together. Um, we saw last week uh, milk and meat and the difference between uh, a light teaching and a heavy teaching that Peter didn't go into uh, a deep theological message per se, but he just went straight to the gospel and that every message at some point, whether it's explicit in the teaching um, or if it's just underlying in the core of the doctrine that's taught, should be based on the cross. I mean, the whole Bible, Old Testament points to Jesus coming and the cross coming and the sacrificial system is a picture of that. And then the New Testament expounds on that and leads us to heaven. So if the cross is at the center of the Bible and the cross is at the center of our faith in a sense, not the wood itself, but the act that Jesus did on the cross, um, it should be in the message. It should be in the teaching. Um, like I said, again, if the message doesn't point to the cross in some way, I think maybe we're missing the point. And maybe, you know, maybe it takes six messages to extrapolate the point that the teacher is making. But at some point, this should be pointing to the cross. Because if it's not pointing to the cross, I have to wonder, is the Holy Spirit uh, at work? Because the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus, always points us to the cross and our need for the Messiah. Um, but we see that at the end of last chapter that God added to the church. That they didn't need to go out and uh, buy Google AdWords. They just did life together, they did those four things, and God began to add to the church. And, uh, and God began to grow the church spiritually and physically. We saw that maybe numbers isn't as important, but it's the souls that matter to God. The 3,000 souls were saved that day. It wasn't that they had a million new people and they had to give out new mugs and t-shirts, but that God saved these people and they became part of the church. Uh, this week, hopefully we'll see uh, a lame man is healed. I think we'll see that. That's the first 10 verses. Uh, we'll see Peter's reaction, or the people's reaction, excuse me, and Peter's response to that. Last time, uh, we asked, uh, what do you think of church? What do you think of church? And hopefully we kind of began to see that maybe there's a definition of church that we probably are all familiar with as Christians, but maybe the world doesn't really understand what church is. Maybe the world doesn't, thinks it's just bake sales or thinks it's whatever they see on TV. But we see that the, the gospel, I'm sorry, Acts and the Bible give um, a much clearer picture. Um, but this week, what do we think of miracles? What do you and I think and believe about miracles? Again, this is one of those things that maybe we have a bad taste in our mouth or something we saw on TV or something we've been around or someone somewhere claimed that it was a miracle and maybe it, it wasn't so much a miracle. Or maybe your parents have told you, you're a miracle. Or maybe they told you it's a miracle I didn't kill you while you are in high school. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they said, but uh, 
Um, uh, yeah, the green cup, please, baby. That's my drink. Sorry. Um, I always forget. Uh, but we're going to start and we're going to cover, hopefully, this chapter today. Uh, Father, again, we just ask for you to uh, expound your word to us, to show us, and to teach us all. God, we're your church, we're your fellowship, and your body. And uh, each one of us, God, is uh, a family uh, to you, whether we uh, meet together or we meet somewhere else, or uh, God, we move anywhere else. God, we're all. Uh, family in you, and uh, God, your blood uh, makes us one, and we thank you for that. So show us uh, in your word new things about you and your truth today, and uh, not new things per se, but things that we haven't maybe seen before. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who enter the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We read that, and I think we can kind of gloss over it and go, monotone voice, that's the Bible, it's verses. But hopefully as we look at it a little bit closer, we'll see, wow, this is pretty amazing. This is not your average run-of-the-mill day at church. This is something special. This is a miracle. And I think one of the first miracles here is that it says Peter and John were together. That these guys who are always running and always seem to be in competition, trying to outrun each other and get closer to Jesus and Peter was always running his mouth and John was the one who Jesus loved and had his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Um, I think there was a sort of competition here, but I like that they're together. You know, they maybe had been so apart, you know, at different areas. Peter, you know, was the one who denied Jesus and was brought back and John never did. Maybe there was some sort of rift there between them. Maybe there was this competition. I don't know what their friendship was really like uh, before, but here it says that Peter and John were together. The little rock and the disciple Jesus loved were together. You know, John maybe could have represented the spirit before the cross, where he was always loving Jesus. He never seemed to be running his mouth. He never seemed to be doing anything wrong. You know, he was the favorite son, you might think, you know. Uh, Peter was always sort of getting into trouble. You know, he cut off the guy's ear. He wanted to call fire down from heaven and um, all sorts of things. And Jesus had to rebuke him. Um, you know, the flesh and the spirit, they don't get along. The flesh and the spirit, they have trouble. Flesh wants to do one thing and the spirit wants to do the complete opposite. And the question for you and I, and you and I with our will is, who is going to win? Are we going to give in to that desire? Or are we going to say yes to the spirit? But it's interesting that after Pentecost, they're together. They're one. That maybe I'm reading into this a little bit, but that the flesh and the spirit are able to go and do the same thing. And they're able to go and want to do the same thing that the flesh is under the control of the spirit and the spirit is leading. But I think more than that, I think it's interesting that these guys who are friends are still friends, that they're good friends, and 
because they're good friends, they're going up to the temple together. They're hanging out. They want to do spiritual things. They want to go pray together. They understand the importance of prayer. And good friends will be like that. Good friends are the ones who will want to pray with you, who will meet with you to pray, who will accept that phone call in the middle of the night when you need someone to uh, pray for you. You know, your best friends are going to pray for you. But it's interesting that they go up to uh, the temple at the hour of prayer. You know, they're still going to the temple. They're Christians. They're believers. They meet, but they still go to the temple. They're still, like we saw saw last week, you know, the the church hasn't really been established in the sense that we think of it yet. They're still going about these other customs because they know that, well, this system has been fulfilled, so I can actually pray to God through this during this time. I I wouldn't suggest going to synagogue today and praying to God. There's much better options. Uh, You know, if you want to go to synagogue and and see what they do and maybe see how things are similar back then, um, but, you know, it's a dead system. God doesn't honor that system anymore. Um, But really... They were going up and they were worshiping God and they were willing to go pray. And the ninth hour under their clock is about 3 p.m. So I don't know what the weather like is there, but I remember going on missions trips in the Bahamas and we tried to do outreach around 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and no one would be outside. And I remember some of the people there would tell us, you guys need to come back later. <laughs> come back at 5 o'clock. People begin to come outside again when the heat of the day is gone. So I don't know what season it was. Maybe a better Bible scholar or maybe if I spent a little more time figuring out what part of the year it was based on 40 days after Pentecost, but it was probably pretty warm. It's the Middle East. But they're going around 3 o'clock to go pray. You know, and this place was in open air where the Jews uh, usually prayed outside the cities where they had no synagogue. Um, Not in this case, obviously, but such places were situated upon the bank of a stream or the shore of the sea where there was a supply of water for washing the hands before prayer. And we see later on, uh, when Paul's going to a certain city, he meets Lydia. And what, what's happening there? There's no synagogue, but there's a group of ladies who come down to the river to pray. And Paul and the guys meet with them, and they plant a church there. Um, but here they're going to pray. And I think today, maybe you've seen pictures of the Wailing Wall, where there's part of the temple that still exists, that's been exposed, and it's still under uh, Jewish control. And so these guys, they go and they pray, and you see them with the phylacteries on their head, and they're you know praying, and they're sticking their prayers in the prayer in the Wailing Wall. Um, you know, think of that. They're going there to the temple to pray. And these guys over there are so desperate to reach God that they're out there at this tiny little wall in modern days. But it says that a certain man lame from the womb. Picture this. You're walking. You're going to temple. Maybe it's a little warm out. You're with your friend. You're, you're excited. you got some things you want to pray about. You're ready to be refreshed by the Lord. And there's this guy lame from womb. So they had an idea who he was. They'd probably seen him before. They, you know, Peter and John had been to temple before. They were at least halfway decent Jewish kids. And he's there asking for alms. And you got any money? Got some money? Maybe he's got his little solo cup and it's rattling change. Some money? Money for the poor? Maybe it was a genetic disorder. Maybe he was disabled. It said he's from, from the womb. We don't really know. But it's interesting that this word means to be below. That he just sort of exists and nothing more. I was looking for something deeper than that, like he had broken legs or some sort of description of his infirmity, but it just said, just sort of this, he's just there. He's just there. And I think, man, this guy begging, disabled from birth, is just there. And isn't that the plight of many people who are disabled? They're just there. They're just living. They're just barely getting by. But he's at the beautiful gate. And there's some, uh, I was reading the commentaries, and there's some controversy over what gate this actually is. They're not 100% sure. 
But the word beautiful is blooming or beautiful. It can be used of the human body. Uh, you know, we have first temple Solomon's. This is the second temple. This is Herod's rebuild that was built before Jesus' time. It's the one that Jesus said, uh, in three days, uh, tear this temple and I'll build it back up again. And they go, it took forever to build this place. <laughs> and you're going to do this? Um, and this is the temple that was destroyed around AD 70. But these were the gates of the second temple. And there were western gates, uh, four western gates. There were eastern gates. There were southern gates. There were north gates. But a lot of the commentary that I read says that this could be the Shushan Gate, somewhere near the Golden Gate, uh, one of the eastern gates. Uh, I'm going to skip through and read part of one of these commentaries. Um, it says the tradition, and this commentary seemed to be kind of scathing, but it said the tradition is not ancient, and the Shushan Gate was no place for a beggar to sit, since it would be used only by those entering the temple from the Mount of Olives or from villages on the east side of the city, and not by those who approach from the city itself. The fact is that no ancient source mentions a beautiful gate, even if the Greek word is a corruption of Aurea or Golden. We could do no better, this guy says, and we do not know where it was located. The Nicanor Gate is probably the best guess. So this guy's saying it's the Nicanor Gate, and this other one says this as well. Uh, the Gate of Herod's Temple is mentioned in the narrative of the healing of the lame man, which we're reading. Uh, the Splendid Gate of Nicanor, uh, of the Mishnah, the Corinthian Gate of Josephus the historian. And authorities are divided as whether this gate was situated at the entrance to the women's court on the east, or is the gate reached by 15 steps, dividing the court from the court of the men, uh, which maybe seems more likely seeing where these guys are coming from. But the balance of recent opinion inclines strongly to the former view. Um, I'm going to skip through. The gate itself was of unusual size and splendor. It received the name Nicanor from it being the work or having been constructed at the expense of an Alexandrian Jew of this name. Lately, an ossuary was discovered on Mount Olivet bearing the Greek inscription, the bones of Nicanor the Alexandrian who made the doors. Its other name, Corinthian, refers to the costly material of which it was constructed, Corinthian bronze. Joseph gives many interesting particular Josephus, excuse me, uh, gives many interesting particulars about this gate, which he tells us greatly excelled in workmanship and value uh, all the others. Uh, these were plated with gold, silver, but this still is more richly and thickly. It was larger than the other gates, 50 cubits in height, it was 40. Its weight was so great that it took 20 men to move it. Its massiveness and magnificence, therefore, well uh, earned for the name beautiful. So we have this massive gate that was bigger than the other gates covered in costly material, made of costly material, even probably the wood they had on the inside was costly. But whatever the exact case, here we have a lame man who's possibly physically deformed from birth. You know, think maybe he's withered, maybe he's just sitting there. He's not pleasant to look at maybe, I don't know, uh, in a physical sense. Um, is sitting next to a re renowned, massive, towering gate that stands above him. It's covered in riches. And here this guy is on the ground, unable to get there, begging, possibly dirty. Who knows? What a contrast. What a contrast. And even that one commentator says, this is no place for a beggar. Why, why would he even be there? Maybe it doesn't even make sense geologically, you know, geographically, why he would be there. I think uh, there's this exit for uh, Route 175 that I take off of 95 to go to work. And you come through off the exit, and there's a light across the street, and then another light, and you merge onto 175. And it's not all the time, but usually there's one of two different guys on the left side of the road begging for money. They go up and down, they hold a sign, they have a hat. One guy's even been reading a Bible, and I haven't had really a chance to talk to him, one guy for more than two seconds. Um, but they're asking for money, and it's not always. Sometimes rainy days are not there. Sometimes sunny days are not there. Uh, they seem to be asking for work. But the one chance, brief chance, I got to talk to one of the guys, he said, you should see the looks that I get. You should see the looks that I get. 
he's a young guy, maybe my age, maybe a little bit younger. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, a little bit dirty, but not completely dirty. Uh, you know, I don't know his story. I don't know what's immediately around the area, how he gets there, if he walks there, someone drops him off, or what the deal is. You never know these days. Uh, you know, you really never know. Because uh, you can make a good living doing that in some places. <laughs> you know, you can be a professional beggar. But I'm not saying that's the case with this guy. But he gets these looks. And he's like, I'm just out of work, and I'm just having a hard time. And, you know, I only had like two bucks, and I gave him two bucks. And the light changed, and I had to go, you know. I, hope to maybe share the gospel with him one day, but, you know, I was like, I've been there, man. I've been out of work before, you know, it's like, you know, I just sensed this kind of like, finally, not a look, not a look. Maybe he needs a look. Maybe he needs a kick in the pants. Go get a job, bro. Wendy's down the street. I don't know. I don't know what he needs. But Peter fixed his eyes on this beggar. This beggar sitting there, money, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. Everyone's going into prayer, alms for the poor. And Peter looks at him. Intently, Peter and John says, they look at him. So this guy maybe wasn't even looking at them. Maybe they're just kind of walking and they're so used to seeing him that you know maybe they don't really pay him attention. And Peter says a little bit later, I don't have any money. So maybe Peter's like, I don't have any money, so there's not much I can do about it. But this guy says this to them and they look at him intently. They fix their eyes on him. And how often do we do that? How often do we do that when someone's begging? How often do we do that whether it's money or whether it's socially? or whatever the case may be, do we turn away? Do we look at them intently? Maybe we're ashamed. Maybe we feel so bad we don't know what to do and we just don't know how to look at them. That I understand. That I get. Maybe it's, oh, I don't want to deal with this today. Maybe you're having a rough day. Maybe you're seeing 10 beggars along the way and you got no more money and you're sick of giving money. And Maybe, you know, I don't know what happened. Or what about if someone was disabled? Do we look at them? Do we look at them in the eyes? There's this guy who works at a fast food place who's clearly physically disabled. He's not mentally disabled, but physically he's got some deformities. And I make a point to look him in the eye and smile and say thank you and um, because I know that he probably doesn't get that all the time. I know that he probably doesn't get that all the time. And I think, man, I, would, I have a hard enough time with working somewhere and making eye contact with people and wondering what people think of me. I can't imagine if I had some sort of disability. I can't imagine what, how hard it must be. <coughs> But eye contact is everything. There's that saying that uh, the eyes are the window to the soul. And I think there's some truth to that. I think there's definitely some truth to that. You know, when someone looks you in the eye, look me in the eye. You know, their kids look me in the eye and tell me. Tell, you know, you can tell if they're lying. It's much easier to tell. Some people are experts and they can look you right in the eye on TV and lie to you. But Matthew 6, through 23, Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And Jesus is more bringing up to the point where when you look at something and you consider it with your spiritual eyes and you think that something wicked is good, you're in a lot of trouble. He says that, you know, if your eyes are wicked, if your eyes perceive things that are wicked and you perceive them as good, the, dark, the light that you think you have is really darkness. But I think in a sense we can see there that our eyes do allow things into our bodies. The stuff that we watch on TV will affect you. There's certain things I can watch. There's certain things I cannot watch. There's certain things that other people can watch that I couldn't watch. There's certain things that none of us should watch because they affect us because that's the way God's designed it. But back to this man, you know, people are so often overlooked, even to their faces, even to their faces, begging right there. Don't even make eye contact in this day and age. We're on our cell phone at the supermarket checkout. <laughs> 
person in front of you, you know, at, on the stop sign, eh, go, 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 you know. We're, we're in a very impersonal society these days. Even our friends, you know, maybe we don't make new friends a lot because we keep all our friends on Facebook. I mean, I don't need my new friends. I can just message someone on Facebook. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with keeping all relationships. We'll see a little bit of that later. But really, we kind of need to, to meet people around us and have eye contact. And, you know, I'm always wary of the guy who's wearing the sunglasses on, on indoors. Um, he's covering something up, right? Unless it's really sunny out. I don't know. And his glasses haven't changed color yet because he has the changing color glasses. But this guy probably asked all day, all the time, without getting a look. And so he's probably used to it, just arms for the poor, arms for the poor, not even expecting anything, just hoping someone's going to drop a shekel in the bucket. But when they say, look at me, they say, hey, look at us. And he looks at them. He doesn't look at them with disdain. He's not like, what? What do you want? He looks at them intently, expecting to receive something. Maybe, well, maybe these guys will actually give me some money so that I don't have to sit here all day. I can go get lunch. You know, it's 3 o'clock. Maybe I haven't eaten yet. But he looks, expecting to receive something. I think that that's key. To stop and wait for. When we're asking for something, to wait for it to be put in our hands. You know, if my daughter asks for apple juice, sometimes being two years old, she'll run away and get all excited. And like me, come back here, get your cup. You know? But when we're asking God for something, we're begging him for something, we need to stop, wait, listen, and put our hands out. We can't receive something if we don't put our hands out. This guy wasn't asking or begging in the first place. He never would have met these guys. If he stayed home that day, if his family or his friends didn't drag him out to the temple, maybe he wouldn't have been there. But again, this is a gift. He's begging for gifts. He's not working a job. He's not holding a sign. We'll work for food. He's just saying, help me. And when it comes to gifts, we can't demand them. We can only receive them. You know, we earn paychecks. We earn paychecks, but gifts, they come not based on what we've done, but based on our relationship. You know, if we're friends with someone, we get them a gift. Big, small, whatever the case may be. Get them a card. We send them a text. Send them an e-card. Christmas time. Bring them food. Buy them lunch. Because there's a relationship there. Or you want there to be a relationship there. You know, when you first start dating, you go out to eat and you buy food. Now I'm like, actually get out your debit card. <laughs> but it's my account now. So it's our account now. So it's the same thing. But... Sincerely, sincerely, that's what happens. I mean, look, even in the sales world, they go out and they buy lunch and they buy food for each other, try and get their business. But really, when we speak to people, when we share their problems, concerns, or anything with us, when they do that, when we look at them, and when they begin to share with us, do they expect to receive anything from us? Do we deliver? Do we deliver? What do we give them? What do we give them? Sometimes someone will unload on you at the supermarket <laughs> You know, uh, I'm, I'm still checking off things in my head of what the list is. <laughs> I just want to get home and have dinner. Sometimes it's a friend and blah, they unload something on you and you're going, I'm in the middle of work. I, I don't even know how to process this right now. But do we deliver? And what do we give them? Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. It doesn't say, let your speech always be filled with theological doctrine that's heady. It says with grace. Well, let me handle this situation with grace. This person is mad. Let me try and be gracious. This person has a problem with God. Let me try and relate the grace of God to them. Let me just be gracious with them. Even though they're, whatever the case may be, it would be gracious. Season with salt. 
Maybe it's, we're not even quoting a verse them, although that's good and that's excellent and there's a, a great time and a place for that, but maybe it's just a sprinkle of our Christian worldview in there. Maybe it's just a sprinkle that our, our, our speech is different. Our speech is different. But verse 6, Peter says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know, Peter's honest with the guy. He doesn't dig around for change. He doesn't take off his watch. He doesn't ask John to break out his wallet because he knows John's got a few extra coins than he does. He just gives the guy what he really needs. The gospel. He's honest with him. You know, Mark 2 and Luke 5, there was that lame man that the friends brought to Jesus. And the place was so crowded because Jesus was teaching. They had to cut a hole in the roof and lower the guy in. And Jesus uh, says that he forgives his sins. They just brought a lame man to Jesus. He says, oh, your sins are forgiven, brother. And the Pharisees and all the people standing around go, how can he do that? You know, they murmur in their heart and says that Jesus knew their, their thoughts. And he says, well, let me prove to you that I have the power of, uh, to forgive sins by telling this man to get up and walk and take his mat and go. And he heals this man. Jesus saw that even though this man was lame that his friends brought to him, he saw that his real need was that his sins would be forgiven. And that this man was used to expose the healing of this miracle of healing this man that Jesus healed was used to expose who Jesus was to the people around him. They used to expose that this guy is not just some great teacher, but he's the Messiah, the one who has the ability to forgive sins. That Jesus used this miracle of healing to not bring attention to himself. Look, I healed some guy, but really, look, I can heal you in the deepest, most powerful way because you're all lame without it. And maybe Peter learned something from seeing Jesus heal people. He must have. He must have. I know he did because what does he do here? What does he do here? He doesn't try and hold the guy up. He doesn't build the guy a wheelchair. Not that those things are bad. Not that those sort of charities are wrong. I think those are great. I think we need to do those things because not everyone is going to be healed. But first and foremost, he recognizes this guy's need. He says, in faith, I'm going to stand up in the name of Jesus because I don't have money, but I have something more better, more powerful, better than money. Stand up and walk. Be healed. You know, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, to touch on the point, uh, I'm just going to read the last verse. Uh, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. That when Jesus did miracles, it was to bring attention to the gospel. It wasn't to make him a famous teacher. It was to say, hey, I do miracles because I'm God. And if I'm God, I can forgive your sins and bring you to heaven. But people just wanted miracles. People wanted miracles. And sometimes Jesus says, the Bible says that Jesus healed a lot of people. So Jesus isn't against miracles, but he's against miracles for miracles sake. And Peter said, rise up and walk and took him by the hand. And that's believing. That's a gift. That's a gift. You know, how many times have we prayed for somebody? We go, Lord, if it's your will, will you heal them? But would you also bless the doctors and give them some good medicine? And God bless you. Have a good day. And how many times have we prayed, God, would you heal them in Jesus name? Just take this away. Take this away. Amen. And I think sometimes we don't want to pray that, or I don't want to pray that, because if it doesn't happen, I'm scared they're going to lose their faith in God, or I'm scared that anything like that. But I found that when I have prayed that, even if it hasn't come true, I've seen people blessed, and not by my prayer, but by the group of us praying. And I've seen them put their faith and trust in God. And not that it's wrong to pray for doctors. Pray for doctors, too. We are blessed to have the doctors in medicine we have in this country. We are absolutely blessed. I'm thankful for it. Um, there's certain things I don't agree with with the medical system, 
But I'm glad we have it. I'm glad that I can tell my wife and ask her to make a list of the local doctors to go to. And we have a bunch and we say, okay, there's an emergency. We go here, we go here, we go here. So we know where we are. I'm glad that we're not here and I'm trying to, to build a, 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 what do they call that? A stent, a stint for your leg. When you break your leg, I'm not breaking open a Coke two liter and duct taping it to my wife's leg if she were to break her leg. I'm glad we can say, yeah, let's get in the car. Let's call 911. I'm glad that we have those things. But where are we first putting our faith and our trust in? Where are we first putting our faith and trust in? Position of this guy immediately received strength. He immediately. It wasn't six weeks later. It was get up and walk in the name of Jesus, faith in his name, and he gets up and he's healed. And you hear stories of these people, maybe you've even seen it in other countries being healed for the gospel's sake. Watch a couple of videos lately, not of it happening, but of people, of Christians talking about their experiences on mission trips where the gospel hadn't gone before and there was even witch doctors in the town and someone would be healed. And then all of a sudden people started flocking to Jesus. And that's why God does miracles. Yes, to heal people. Yes, to ease their pain. Yes, to give them uh, a quote unquote better physical life. But it's to bring the gospel. As to say, God is real. God has power over even these things. And if God can do these things, how much more can he do? If he can do the impossible in your life, how much more can he do? But we have the gospel, like I said. We have doctors. God has given us signs. We've had the church in America for the whole history of America. Not that God doesn't heal these days. I've seen people be healed for prayer. I've seen people's cancer go away. Yeah, they went to the doctor too, but it was strange. And we know that God can use those things. I've seen people have been healed. I've seen people's pain be taken away. But I think we're not as desperate. I think in America, we're so dependent on, let me just go to the doctor. Let me just go get medicine that we miss the opportunity for God to work in a more spectacular way that's going to bring glory to his name. Not that saying, I prayed, I went to the doctor, and the doctor gave me medicine. Well, the doctor gave the, God gave the doctor wisdom. God created this universe so the doctor could do some experiments and figure out how chemicals interact and things like that. So God created it all. But really, I don't think we're as desperate. I don't think we're as desperate as we see these people in the Bible where their, their children are sick and they've gone everywhere or they've been bleeding their whole life and they've gone everywhere and they've got nothing left. So they reach out and just grab Jesus or they say, Jesus, I'm a soldier. I know what it's like to take orders. I know if you just say from here, my, my children will be healed that people are desperate. And I think that when people are desperate and they are looking for an answer, do we give them the answer? Do we point them to Jesus? We need to because God has power. But I think if we're not trusting in God ourselves in those ways, uh, there's really we can only take people as far as we've gone in a sense. But this guy wasn't even looking to be healed in what he asked for. But God, again, knew his real need. He was asking for money. Peter said, I don't have money. I know money's not going to fix your problem. I know no amount of money is going to fix this problem in your life. Let me heal you in the name of Jesus. What do we ask for when we seek God? Just little things? God, can I have a few shekels? <laughs> please. I'm not even going to look at you. I'm just, God, a few shekels, please, a few shekels. What do we ask for the impossible? God, would you heal me? God, would you fix this in my life? Would you fix this in my family's lives? Would you heal this person who, even though the doctors say there's no hope, what are you doing? Would you heal this person? Because I know you can. I know you came back from the dead. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, thanks Lord, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God says, hey, you guys are pretty evil. Yeah, you love God, but there's still plenty of wickedness in you. But even when your children come to you, do you give them something out of spite? I mean, some parents these days, you read about what happens and you go, my friend was reading a news story to me at work and it was sickening. It was sickening. But I can't imagine that, giving that to my kids. In fact, I say, no, stay away. You're going to get hurt and helicopter parent them a little bit. But man, if we just ask God, he wants to answer those prayers. It may not always be the way we want, but he's going to answer them. It says that when this man leaped up and was healed, that he went into the temple with them. He knew who healed them. He knew who deserved thanks. It wasn't necessarily these guys. Yes, thank you for praying me. Yes, thank you for taking the time to look me in the eye and reach out your hand and be involved in my life. But he went into temple with them. He didn't go home. He went to temple. He knew, I've been here this whole time. God, you've healed me. I'm going to go in and I'm going to praise and worship you. And that's important. You know, Jesus healed a lot of people. And sometimes they would go off and not come back. And only one or two of them would come back and say thank you. And I think that's why maybe, maybe the Lord will allow pain and suffering and hurt in our lives is to get us to depend on him. That if we're not healed, we'll stay close to him. But if we were, we would wander from him. You know, Paul prayed several times that God would heal him of this affliction that there's some theories on what it was. Maybe it was uh, physical infirmity. Maybe it was something with his eyes. You know, this messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him, as Paul described it. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to heal you, Paul, because you've seen some crazy things. You've done some wicked things. We need to keep you straight. We need to keep you close. And I would think that the Lord would do that in all our lives in some way. That maybe there's something in us he's never going to heal, this side of heaven, to make sure we keep going the right way. That sort of goad to kind of keep pricking us and remind us that, hey, we're not perfect. Hey, keep going. Keep seeking God. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 8, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into this life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast in everlasting fire. And Jesus is not really prescribing that we would go and cut off our hand if we keep stealing something. In a sense, maybe. But really that we would just cut off these things. That It's better to walk around in this life missing out on the things that we really want, whether it's healing or relationships or stuff that would cause us to stray from our relationship with God, that we might know that we're going to heaven, know that we're not compromising, know that we haven't wandered from the faith, then get to heaven and receive everything we ever needed and ever wanted. And we'd be blessed then to get there and have our arms full of everything we wanted and go, I never trusted God, (laughs) and then lose everything. We're going to be completed and healed in heaven. Remember, uh, a bunch of us were praying for this guy in New York um, who died of cancer a few weeks after we were praying for him, that, we would, that God would heal him. We knew that, hey, you're going home soon. You're going to have a new body. You're going to be with the Lord soon. You're going to be with the Lord soon. And he said, I know. And there was just relief on his face. And a couple of weeks later, he passed away, and it was sad, but he's with the Lord. He doesn't have those problems anymore. But he was praising God. And maybe this had been his prayer to God all along, being so close to the temple. Can you imagine going outside, sitting on a large mega church, giant golden doors, people pulling up in their Lexuses, and you're out there begging week after week? Because you know this is a house of God. Maybe these people haven't treated you the way God would have treated you. But you know this is a house of God. And he was so close to the things of God, and yet he was still maimed. He still had major needs. His life. Still had a huge need, and he was so close to the things of God. 
But he chose to make his needs known by the temple. He didn't go anywhere else. He didn't go down by the docks. He didn't go somewhere else. He went to the temple because he knew, hey, if I'm going to go anywhere, I'm going to go here because it's God's house. Maybe it was a last resort. I don't know. Maybe he tried everywhere else. Maybe everyone else kicked him out. Maybe even the people of God shunned him. That's why he didn't expect eye contact. Maybe he had been overlooked. How many people prayed for him in the past? How many people stopped and maybe actually prayed for him there? I don't know. But when he came in, the people saw him walking and praising God. This guy gets healed. He gets up. He walks in. He's praising God. And a changed life and a changed heart always leads to song. If our lives haven't been touched, haven't been healed, we have no reason to sing. But if we have been touched, we have reason to sing. There is a reason why I sing in worship. Because I know God's healed me. Even when my life is going hard and I do it, I know God has healed me. I know there's a reason to sing because God is real. And then there's times when I don't sing and I go... I'm angry about something or I'm bitter and I don't want to praise. And it's totally selfish and fleshly. But are we worshiping? Are we leaping and praising God for the things he's done for us? You know, others are going to see it either way. When they find out you're a Christian, they're going to see it either way. This Christian's not very happy. Or this Christian's always happy. They used to call me smiley at a job I was at. I don't think they would call me smiley at the job I'm at now. But when I first got saved, I was like, hey, smiley. And they used to make fun of me for that. <laughs> Probably not anymore, especially if they saw me driving. But why are you in the left lane? This is the left lane. <laughs> but others will see either way. And this guy became a witness for the power of God. And the people were in amazement. I can hear them murmuring. Did you see? You see him? The lane, who? The lane guy. He's been out there his whole life. He's jumping. He's leaping. He's praising God. He's with a couple of guys walking in the temple. No way, dude. Let's go see. Let's go see him. Let's go see. Let's go on. Let's go through a couple more verses. Probably won't finish the chapter today, but let's go on. Verse 11. Now as a lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon. Solomon's greatly amazed. Verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power and godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are his witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given this man this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. We'll stop there. Excuse me. It says that he held on to them. He no longer needed to hold on to people for walking physically. This man was leaping and jumping. He wasn't hanging on to them because he wasn't totally healed. He was hanging on to them because he was thankful. These guys prayed for me. I can walk. I haven't walked my entire life. I can jump. I can move. Thank you, please. I want to know this, God, that you know I want this. It's important that we hold on to those around us who lift us up physically and spiritually. They truly care for us. They have our best interest in heart. And how can we tell? They hang on to us. They look us in the eyes. They tell us the truth. They pray for us. They care for us, even when no one else will. Even when everyone else turns their back on us, they won't. You know, my wife, my kids, my friends, and vice versa, we hang on to each other. We stay in touch. We text. We call. We hug. Not that it happens maybe every day, but every once in a while we check in and see how you're doing. 
Now can I tell if someone doesn't really care? These things don't happen. I know things get busy. I know sometimes a long time passes and make contact, but when it never comes, it never happens, or when it happens and it's like, I just don't want to talk to you. That's how we kind of know. But Peter saw what the people's response was, and he responded. And spiritual discernment can be very practical. Sometimes as simple as looking around the room, whether here or at work or when you're out somewhere and go, oh, that something doesn't seem right here. Something seems a little off. I better walk the other way or I better walk this way, depending on your personality. But Peter looked around and he saw that the people were giving attention to the wrong thing. And so he responded. When you see something going on, respond to it. Don't turn your eyes away. It's something spiritual. If it's something that you're unable to handle, get, you know, get away. If it's a, a fight, don't necessarily go in and break up a gang fight. <laughs> Call 911 or something. But don't turn your eyes away from, from a need that you see in the room. It says that they looked intently, that they were beginning to be awakened to their spiritual lameness. That these people have just come to prayer, maybe doing the same old thing week after week, began to look around intently. And they were attributing the work to Peter and John as if they were something super holy, that these guys were superheroes. They were the Avengers. Look what they did. Let's worship and praise these guys. But Peter gives credit to God. And he goes back all the way to Abraham. It says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, hey, this is the God you believe in. And then he brings it to Jesus. He says, he doesn't alienate them right away. He says, this is who you believe in. This is the power of God through who? Jesus. Not through us. We're nothing special. It was through Jesus. He immediately gets into who Jesus is and starts the same message he gave only recently at the day of Pentecost. Hey, these guys are drunk. What are they talking about? Why do I hear these things in my language? And Peter goes, it's Jesus whom you killed. The gospel. He makes it clear that Jesus is alive and that it's God and it's God's power through faith in Jesus' name, not a magical potion. I won't read it for time, but John 14, 12 through 14. Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I will do it. That there's power in the name, but it's not the name only. If we read later on in Acts 19, 13 through 17, about the seven sons of Sceva, and they try to cast out demons in the name that Jesus, who Paul preaches, the demons go, we know Jesus, we know Paul. But who are you guys? And they beat them up and they run away naked and bruised. And It's not just saying the name. Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, depart from me, you wicked servant. I never knew you. It's not just a magical potion. It's not just the name. We have to know him. There's a relationship. And how does that relationship come? By faith in him. Not a word of faith. Word of faith. Name it and claim it, brother. You want that Ferrari? You can get that Ferrari. Just claim it in Jesus' name. No. Jesus goes, What? I'm not going to do that. Wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And he departed them. It says Jesus leaves when that goes on. He says, ah, I got nothing to do here. I'm going to go somewhere where they really have faith. But it's a gift by a relationship with Jesus. Again, we can't earn it. These things come through faith as a gift. And God wants to give gifts. God doesn't go up there and go, I don't want to give you anything today. He wants to give us something every day. But it says that he's the, they killed the prince of life, the originator of life. And why can God heal? Because he's the originator of life. He's the prince of life. He has power over life and death. He can say, hey, dry bones, become alive again. He say, hey, Mr. Rich Businessman, you're dead today. God made us. He can heal us. Psalm 139.13 For you formed me my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb, David said. That God made everyone in the womb. So wait a minute. If God made everyone in their womb, and this guy was disabled from his mother's womb, whoa. What happened here? Did God make this man broken? 
In a way, yes. In a way, no. There's sin in the world. Adam and Eve sinned. You and I continue that long tradition of people sinning. But God allows it because that's the effects of sin. He allows us and gave us free will, but He made a way out of it. There's heaven, there's forgiveness, there's cleansing, there's healing, there's heaven. But we have to deal with these consequences sometimes. We have to deal with sin sometimes. And there's effects of this in the world. But God can still be glorified through the effects of sin in the world. And God will not be mocked in that way. In John 9, 2-3, we're going to close here in a minute. He says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind, that this other guy was born blind? The disciples go, well, we know it has to do with sin. We know it must be sin. So it's either this guy sinned and God struck him, or his parents were in sin and so he was born blind. And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Whoa, mind blown for these guys. They attributed all sin and sickness, to all sickness and pain to sin, to personal sin. It's a family sin. And in a sense, that's true. You know, you have an alcoholic parent, you might end up being an alcoholic, but when you turn to God, God's going to free you of that cycle. He's going to break that cycle. And there's a lot of people out there today who say that, oh, if you're sick, you don't have enough faith. Uh, Jesus died on the cross. Paul was sick. God allows sickness. Do you ever get a cold? I don't have enough faith. Uh, well, you got better, right? Well, I got enough faith. I don't know. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's sin in the world, and there's sickness in the world because of sin, but it's not always a personal fault. It's not always a personal fault. There's some that are, are. There's plenty of diseases out there you can absolutely avoid 100%. But God allows these things that we might know Him in the midst of a sinful, fallen, hurting, broken, and dying world. If there wasn't any of these opportunities for Him to heal us, not that He wishes it wasn't perfect like the Garden of Eden beforehand. God is broken over our sin and hurting over it, but because we have to live with this for a season... God wants to heal people and bring glory to his name and let us see him, that he has power even over these hard, impossible things for us. You know, our families being healed, my mom being healed, my mother-in-law being healed, brings people to him. My sister's going through a really hard time right now, but it's drawn her so close to the Lord. It's drawn her kids to the Lord. There's broken things we see all throughout the Bible. Joseph. But if this man being lame from birth, finally being healed in front of everyone, is used to bring the truth of the gospel to these people who are going to worship God. They're going to the temple... Put it simply, maybe they're missing the point of who God is. Maybe they haven't heard about Jesus yet. This guy's been lame his whole life. He's healed. All these people come to have faith in him. Man, sometimes I think we go, I don't want to be in this, and God, why do you have me in this, and why am I here? It's because God wants to do something. God wants to heal somebody through you, through your pain and through your suffering. And say, like we see in 2 Corinthians 1, that the same comfort and consolation that God gives us in our hard times is the same comfort and consolation that we, in turn, can give others. It's not because God's sadistic. God wants to heal us all. But He's not going to overwrite the, the effects of free will until He returns. We live in an age of grace. But as we close, God wants people to know Him for who, really, who He really is. If healing them is going to let them miss the mark, Say, I'm going to let this be in your life until it gets your attention enough. You know, God allowed a lot of things in my life to where it was unbearable, to where I finally got my attention and I repented and came to Him. And God's going to do that because God knows that this physical life is short, even if we don't know that. And He knows that the eternity is, well, it's eternity. 
He says, if, if I have to let you suffer for 70 years, that you might live with me in eternity, well, God's going to do that in his wisdom. And we might go, God, why are you going to do that? That's horrible. That's not a loving God. Absolutely, it's a loving God. If I have to put my daughter in time out, if I have to discipline my daughter so that she gets mad at me and says, I'm not happy, I'm mad. And she won't look at me, and I'll have to try and get her to look at me and I'll tell her I love you because the Bible tells me to discipline you if I love you, and I love you because I don't want you to grow up and be a bad person or have to deal with the effects of this the rest of your life. Well, I'll make that sacrifice for this short time that she might hopefully, prayerfully grow up into a godly young woman, which I believe she will be. But the point there that God's going to allow hard things to, to kind of get us going in, in the right direction. And we see that when we begin to go in that right direction, and he does work through it, that it brings glory to him. And, and that, to me, surpasses any other comfort. When, when God uses a trial that I've been through for his name, and I, and I finally mature enough to accept that and rejoice in that, even though I may still be in the trial, man, that's way more comforting than having my need, my physical need met. Uh, so, Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you, always, God, that you allow hard things in our life that uh, we might come to know you and others around us might come to know you. Not that you don't want them to be healed. You do. But for some reason, you allow things that we don't understand. And, and probably I barely scratched the surface, or maybe I'm totally wrong on that, Lord, and we'll find out in heaven. But we know that, Lord, from what we see in the Scripture, God, you allow these things to bring glory to your name, that you allowed him to be born blind, you allowed this man to be born lame, that one day in his life he would leap and praise and, and, and rejoice in you and others might come to you. So God, would you use us in those ways? Would you comfort those around us? And for those who are hurting and are sick and our families that we know of, God, would you bring them to know you? We know you've allowed these things, God, in times in our lives that they would come to know you. So please bring them to you. Please heal them spiritually. And Lord, we know that your will, that none would perish, but all would come to you. So we, we ask for that, Lord. And healing, if it comes through physical healing too, that's great, Lord. We ask for that too. But God, just bless uh, our family and our friends who are sick and uh, heal them and use us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.